The title of this morning's message is The Ease of Being Made Right with God. And I purposefully have entitled this The Ease of Being Made Right with God because that's what we're talking about in Romans chapter 10. As usual, I highly encourage you to follow along in your copy of the Word, even though the verses are still on the screen. And so let's get into it. Brethren, he says... After all that he's spoken of in Romans chapter 9, again, I just ask you, just to, whatever interpretation you have of Romans chapter 9, just take this into account. Because he says this straight away, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. That's a prayer. That's a desire of Paul. Simple question. I'll just allow the Holy Spirit. What is your heart's desire? Do we actually have this same heart that Paul has when we go out through our week? Does this even cross our minds? People's salvation. This is what we're here for. We've experienced salvation ourselves, but how how heavy is that on our hearts? How mindful are are we of that each time that we even... Go out in public. Are we prepared to be encountered with someone looking for salvation? Are we being prepared to be used by God to lead someone to a saving knowledge of His grace? Do we pray for the people that are close to us who are unsaved? You know, I'd love for us, for that prayer guide that we have, we have a salvation list. I'd love for that to be, to be bigger, where we can all pray for each other's loved ones for salvation. How, how, how often is it on our minds? That's something only you can answer. And I'll allow the Holy Spirit to speak. For number two, verse two, for I can testify to their zeal for God. Whose zeal is he talking about? Well, who has he been talking about in the last chapter? Israel. So again, this is still specifically for the Jews. The audience is the Jews. Doesn't mean we can't learn from it and apply it to ourselves. Because you'll find out the same things that the Jews did Thousands of years later, even the Gentiles are doing it. They're doing the same mistake, committing the same mistake that the Jews committed. But Paul, he testifies of their zeal. Even Paul, before he became a Christian, he was zealous, right? We're told of the stories and acts of his zealousness of his zeal, I should say. I, please, English teachers, please forgive me. He was there. He was there at the stoning of Stephen, holding the cloaks of those stoning him. Saying, yeah, 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 kill him, kill him. Because he thought Stephen was a, a guy that was against who God was. He had zeal. He even testifies of his own zeal in, um, in Philippians chapter 3. There. And it's a big but. 
It is not based on correct understanding. You know, I came across this quote, passion, oh my goodness, passion is the beginning of success. That's the quote. It's from a guy called Robert T. Kiyosaki, which you might know from uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. But even that quote, passion is the beginning of success. Even that, I'm going to say, it's not necessarily true. Because what is your passion for? Oh, I'd love to have some passionate people, right? But do I want people that are passionate about, I don't know, killing people? There are some passionate people that do that? Stealing? Any sin? So it's a particular kind of passion that we're looking for, right? A love following this morning's um, brief message on the, on the faith segment that we have. Passionate people, about, people who are passionate about the church. That would be great. About having a passion for caring for God's children. That would be great. Passion for others. That would be great. Passion for sharing the good news about Jesus. Wow, that would be great. It's a particular kind of passion. One with correct understanding. The Jews were passionate people. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. But just because they have passion doesn't mean it's correct. You need passion with correct understanding, as verse 2 tells us. And this is the, the misunderstanding that they're making. We are just told about it in the end of chapter 9. We went through it last week. The misunderstanding that they have is that they are unaware of God's way of making people righteous. Instead, they seek to set up their own righteousness. Paul's reiterating what he just said at the end of chapter 9. They have not submitted themselves, and I purposefully used a very simple version here, they have not submitted themselves to God's way of making people righteous. This is what we're talking about this morning. We're still having debates over this, arguments over this in the Christian church. And I'm going to be asking a question, why is there so much conflict over this? Why can't we submit to God's way of making people righteous? They're unaware of it. There's a misunderstanding. They've been brought up to know who God is, but at the same time, they don't fully understand who God is. Verse 4, for Christ, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the good news this morning. The end of the law of righteousness. Now firstly, firstly, the question has to be asked, and this is dependent on the people who you talk to, is it all of the law or some of the law? All of the law or just some. What do I mean by that? Well, a lot of Christians will tell you, yeah, Paul just means the sacrificial law and the ceremonial law, all those rules that the Old Testament had, that's what he means. But he doesn't mean the moral law. The moral law, no, we still have to keep that. Ten Commandments, moral law, we have to keep that. We need to. But, Paul says here, Christ 
is the end of the law. It's all or nothing. We can't pick and choose. A lot of people are saying, no, Ten Commandments, and they choose, they choose the laws that they want. A lot of people are going around saying, you need to tithe to be right with God. You need to. They're plucking that. That's not even in the Ten Commandments. But they're plucking that one out and putting it in there. And then, you know, the majority of Christians worship on Sunday. And so, oh, that's Sabbath. Now, that's just Old Testament. We'll get rid of that one and we'll replace it with tithing. Yeah, that's a good idea. Still have ten. You see what we're doing? Just picking and choosing what laws suit us. As soon as you say some, totally off track. Totally off track. But one question here, is the end of the law for righteousness? My question is, has there ever been a law for righteousness? Has there ever been a time where God made someone right before them just by the laws that they obeyed? And the answer is yes. But hear me out. Because we've had an interesting discussion in previous weeks about an Old Testament saint. Were they saved by faith? Yes. But were they justified by faith? Or were they justified by works? Were they justified by obeying the law? Out of that interesting conversation we had, you can't deny that an Old Testament saint was justified by faith. But was there ever an opportunity to be justified by works? And I'll say yes. If you obeyed every single law at every single second and never once disobeyed one, then you could be justified by works. But there were 613 laws overall. And for an Israelite to do every single one or not disobey one, virtually impossible. Even this is another way of saying that obeying every single law was the only option to be justified by works. Cursed is the man who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. Any law, it was all or nothing. It was obey every single law or be cursed. As James puts it, if you've broken just one law, you're guilty of all. So yes, there was a law of righteousness. But theoretically, practically, definitely, it was impossible. So here we go. Moses writes in verse 5. Paul's referring to Moses. Writes about the righteousness that comes from the law. And this is why I bring that question up. Here I was reading this and he says, that implies that there's righteousness that does come from the law. But here he references, and I'm very interested that um, I usually have verses that when they reference an Old Testament scripture, which I'm, we're going to do, see later on, they're in capital letters. But this particular version um, does not do that in this verse. But a lot of 
scholars agree that Paul is referring to something that Moses said in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, if you're writing notes. The person who does these things will live by them. The person who does these things will live by them. In other words, what I just said, every law that I've granted you, that I've instructed you to obey, you actually have to obey every single one. Otherwise, there's no hope for you. You won't be made right before God. So is there a justification by works? No. Old Testament saints were not justified by works. They actually had to be justified by faith. Otherwise, there's no hope for them. Unfortunately, not many people understood that. They thought they could be made right with God just by the amount of rules that they could obey. Making sure that the amount of rules that they did obey outweighed the amount of laws they disobeyed. We can say that by the study of Galatians 3. For all who are of works of the law, so all who believe that they can be justified by works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, curse is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. Now, that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous one will live by faith. Even the Old Testament tells us the righteous one lives by faith. We're justified by faith. However, the law is not of faith. The law is not of faith. That's common sense, isn't it? On the contrary, the person who performs them will live by them. And this is another paraphrase of this same reference found in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, which Paul is mentioning right here in Romans chapter 10. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, i.e. Jesus Christ, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Aren't you glad we don't have to obey any of these Jewish laws? I'm glad. And now here, where we can be assured that Moses preached about justification by faith. But the righteous based on faith speaks as follows. So we're talking about being made right in the image of God, from God's point, we can be made right with God through faith. We know that's the answer. Through faith is as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or, who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, if you've read these verses before, who straight away knew what in the world Moses was talking about? They knew. I, I confess, this has puzzled me for quite a while. And I've heard multiple interpretations of why Paul says this, why Paul references Moses saying this to the Israelites. Firstly, what is he referencing? It's found in Deuteronomy 30. And I, I highly encourage you to read this chapter this week if, if you're not doing it already. Uh, but starting in verse 10, Moses writes, If you shall obey the voice of Yahweh your God, if to keep his commandments 
and his statutes, which are written in the book of the law, if you turn to Yahweh, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul. Now this if follows the outcome of affirming that instruction. And it is that you shall prosper. You will, you will gain access to the land. Pretty much prosper. You could say you will prosper if you shall obey the voice of Yahweh. If you turn to Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, did you see the difference between what he said there? One's external, one's internal. Look at it. The external is keeping his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book. But to a Jew, this might have messed him up. If you turn to Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So Moses is saying, obeying him externally with something written down, I can obey a rule just because it's there. But to do it in your heart with all your soul, that's a different case. A great illustration is, I, say, I, I mostly said this every single day when I was a teacher. When you have a student and you tell them the rule, well, they have a choice. They can obey that rule just because they don't want to get in trouble. Or they can obey that rule because they know in their heart it's the right thing to do. They know in their heart why that rule stands. It's not just a simple external obedience, a pleasing, but it's an obedience that comes from the heart. Well, how in the world do you search God with all your heart and with all your soul? I need it written down. Therefore, in verse 11, the next verse, for this commandment, this commandment, which I am commanding you today, it's not too difficult for you, he says. It's not too difficult. Nor is it far away. It is not in heaven that you could say, who will go up to heaven for us and get it for us, proclaiming it to us so that we may follow it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you could say, who will cross the sea for us and get it for us and proclaim it to us so that we may follow it. Do you see how Paul's paraphrased what Moses has said to the Israelites? First of all, who will go to heaven for us? Who will ascend into heaven? Who will cross the sea for us? That's who will descend into the abyss. This is the deepest part of the sea that he's talking about here. Same, same word when we can look at the Greek version of this particular passage that was originally written in Hebrew. And then, which we're about to find out, on the contrary, verse 14, the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may follow it. We'll get into that shortly. So I've heard this, um, inter the main interpretation I've heard is, when we say, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, I've heard um, a particular preacher say that don't let, us, don't let us judge who is going to heaven amongst us. Or who is going to hell 
Don't make that judgment. But when, I, I, I just don't see the logic of Paul referencing our judgment amongst others to what he's really trying to say to the Jews. So what is he really trying to say to the Jews from what I say? Well, in a nutshell, he's saying, folks, guys, being made right before God, you think it's by what, how much you obey the law, but it's not. It's actually by faith. Christ has made that permanent, real, obvious, if you want to put it. Justification by faith is how we can be made right before God. Now, this concept, this truth, it's not something that is afar off. It's something that is right in front of you if you just open up your eyes and open up your ears. So this, these, um, these terms where we say, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? These are actually Jewish proverbs that depict a place that for a Jew, it's unattainable. Don't say that you can be made right before um, God with be faith as something that is not attainable, something that's not achievable, something that is impossible. Don't say that. Also, don't say the opposite of the universe. When we talk of the heavens, we look at the abyss or the deepest parts of the sea. Don't say that's unattainable. Don't say that that's impossible to reach. But Paul adds something very interesting. He's added these parentheses himself. He says that is to bring Christ down. And in verse 7, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. So what's he saying there? Why has he added these little parts to the, uh, in parentheses? And personally, again, um, scholars... Ha, um, uh, disagree with this because remember what we're trying to do? We're trying to get into the, the mind of Paul here. Why does he mention this? And so my belief is that he's referencing what Christ has already done. So for instance, if I'm trying to justify myself by just obedience, okay, what has Christ done to make that just disappear, to make that um, invalid, to make that gone. Well, he's come down in human form, yes, and he's died for me, and that death is my penalty. His death is my punishment. He's taken that on himself. So to say that I'm going to try to become righteous by my faith, by my works, then what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to bring Christ down again to do something that he's already done. Opposite. Who would ascend, that is to bring Christ up, well, what did Christ do to prove his death was valid is he rose from the grave. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to bring Christ up from the grave again. So you're trying to do something, in other words, that Christ has done for you. Never be able to do it. Only Christ has done it because he was in incarnate form. He was the only sacrifice that was holy and, and, um, and able to be that sacrifice that would take away our sin. 
He's the only one who could do it. Secondly, he's the only one that's been raised from the dead. He's the only one that's proven that death is defeated, has been beaten, can be beaten. In verse 8, but what does it say? What does it say to you, Jew? It says the word is near you. Stop being ignorant of something that is right in front of you. Stop being ignorant of a truth that is really, it's in your mouth and in your heart. It's, it, it's, it's there. It's just that you have blinded yourself. You have hardened yourself to the point where you say, nah, that's not true. The word of faith which we are preaching today, that's what is right in front of you. And you, just like any other Gentile, has the opportunity, the opportunity to be made right before your God just by the faith in Jesus Christ. So we're talking about law versus grace here. And this is the, the, the final question. Why is there so much conflict among Christians on the issue? Because we're still fighting about this today. We're still arguing amongst denominations. No, we have to, we have to do this in order to be made right before God. But here we have Scripture saying, no, it's just by faith. Why? Why can we not grapple with this? I'll tell you, the, the, the most, um, unfortunately the most um, prevalent group that is really with this law are Seventh-day Adventists because they have all these rules that tells you you have to do this even to the point where you have to send your child to a, a particular, to a particular school. You have to educate them in a particular way. You can't take medications. You can't eat sugar or, or bad foods. Or you, why? Why? Where does this come from? And I think, I think it's because we don't fully understand the actual grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We actually haven't fully comprehended the, the breadth of it or the width of it, the depth of it, the length of it. We, we actually haven't, we, we haven't comprehended that. And it's because, most likely it's because, well, we're here on this earth, and what Christ has done for us, it's not normal. No relationship that we have with each other can be equivalent to what Christ has done for us. I wish it could be true, but I confess, even with my son, when he's done something wrong with me and he's deeply hurt me, yes, he's still my son, but I can't treat him the same. Or I can't look at him the same. It takes some time for me to forgive him. It takes some time for me to, you know, say, oh, yeah. But this is what Christ does for us. This is what Christ has done for us. It's, a, it's, it's, it's an amazing love that, it's beyond words for you, for me, to be treated as righteous before God, even though, God forbid, even going out this door will do something that is totally an offense to him. And he treats us the same. Like having a coach on your side. And you stuff up, but he's there. And he keeps on bringing you back up. That's phenomenal. 
here in this world. That's not normal. It's too good to be true. No, I have to earn my way. I have to earn my righteousness before God. God, God can't be like that. And this is why the gate or the path is narrow. Because a lot of people who are trying to be right with God, look at all the religions in the world. They're always trying to do something. They're trying to earn their righteousness. Just like 2,000 years ago when the Jews did it. So I need to stop saying we need to do this. At the moment we're discussing confessing our sins. And a lot of people have mistaken me. I've, I think a lot of people have assumed that I've said we, we don't confess our sins. We shouldn't confess our sins. I'm not saying that when we look at 1 John 1 9. I'm saying we shouldn't use 1 John 1 9 to say that we need to confess our sins. There's a difference between saying we should confess our sins versus we need to confess our sins. Because if we say need, it means there is a condition. It means something bad will happen if we don't. It means there is some separation. And that's not what we've been talking about in Romans or through. Righteousness before God is made by faith and faith alone. That's it. We need to praise God on that and rejoice in that truth every single day. Let's do that right now. And we, Father, we thank you. Thank you that we have been made right in your sight. And nothing, nothing that we do can ever change that. Even when it comes down to no matter how many sins we commit, God forbid. Help us to understand, Lord, that every instruction given in our New Testament is something that we should be doing, Lord. Because you want us to prosper. You want our joy to remain full. Help that to be firm in our hearts and minds. And help our heart to have that same heart as Paul, where this knowledge of righteousness before God is not kept to ourselves. Inspire us, challenge us even, to share that to the people around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.